Preface and Chapters 1 and 2 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Preface. Samuel Butler began to write The Way of All Flesh about the year 1872 and was engaged upon it intermittently until 1884. It is therefore to a great extent contemporaneous with life and habit, and may be taken as a practical illustration of the theory of heredity embodied in that book. He did not work on it after 1884, but for various reasons he postponed its publication. He was occupied in other ways, and he professed himself dissatisfied with it as a whole, and always intended to rewrite, or at any rate, revise it. His death in 1902 prevented him from doing this, and on his deathbed he gave me clearly to understand that he wished it to be published in its present form. I found that the manuscript of the fourth and fifth chapters had disappeared, but by consulting and comparing various notes and sketches which remained among his papers, I have been able to supply the missing chapters in a form which I believe does not differ materially from that which he finally adopted. With regard to the chronology of the events recorded, the reader will do well to bear in mind that the main body of the novel is supposed to have been written in the year 1867, and the last chapter added as a postscript in 1882. R. A. Streetfield Chapter 1 when I was a small boy at the beginning of the century, I remember an old man who wore knee-breeches and worsted stockings, and who used to hobble about the street of our village with the help of a stick. He must have been getting on for eighty in the year 1807, earlier than which date I suppose I can hardly remember him, for I was born in 1802. A few white locks hung about his ears, his shoulders were bent and his knees feeble, but he was still hale, and was much respected in our little world of Palaham. His name was Pontifex. His wife was said to be his master. I have been told she brought him a little money, but it cannot have been much. She was a tall, square-shouldered person. I have heard my father call her a Gothic woman, who had insisted on being married to Mr. Pontifex when he was young and too good-natured to say nay to any woman who wooed him. The pair had lived not unhappily together, for Mr. Pontifex's temper was easy, and he soon learned to bow before his wife's more stormy moods. Mr. Pontifex was a carpenter by trade. He was also at one time parish clerk. When I remember him, however, he had so far risen in life as to be no longer compelled to work with his own hands. In his earlier days he had taught himself to draw. I do not say he drew well, but it was surprising he should draw as well as he did. My father, who took the living of Palaham about the year 1797, became possessed of a good many of old Mr. Pontifex's drawings, which were always of local subjects and so unaffectedly painstaking that they might have passed for the work of some good early master. I remember them hanging up framed and glazed in the study at the rectory, and tinted as all else in the room was tinted, with the green reflected from the fringe of ivy leaves that grew around the windows. 
I wonder how they will actually cease and come to an end as drawings, and into what new phases of being they will then enter. Not content with being an artist, Mr. Pontifex must needs also be a musician. He built the organ in the church with his own hands, and made a smaller one which he kept in his own house. He could play as much as he could draw, not very well according to professional standards, but much better than could have been expected. I myself showed a taste for music at an early age, and old Mr. Pontifex, on finding it out, as he soon did, became partial to me in consequence. It may be thought that with so many irons in the fire he could hardly be a very thriving man, but this was not the case. His father had been a day-laborer, and he had himself begun life with no other capital than his good sense and good constitution. Now, however, there was a goodly show of timber about his yard, and a look of solid comfort over his whole establishment. Towards the close of the eighteenth century, and not long before my father came to Palaham, he had taken a farm of about ninety acres, thus making a considerable rise in life. Along with the farm there went an old-fashioned but comfortable house with a charming garden and an orchard. The carpenter's business was now carried on in one of the outhouses that had once been part of some conventual buildings, the remains of which could be seen in what was called the Abbey Close. The house itself, embosomed in honeysuckles and creeping roses, was an ornament to the whole village, nor were its internal arrangements less exemplary than its outside was ornamental. Report said that Mrs. Pontifex starched the sheets for her best bed, and I can well believe it. How well do I remember her parlor half filled with the organ which her husband had built! and scented with a withered apple or two from the pyrus japonica that grew outside the house the picture of the prize ox over the chimney-piece which mr pontifex himself had painted the transparency of the man coming to show light to a coach upon the snowy night also by mr pontifex the little old man and the little old woman who told the weather the china shepherd and shepherdess the jars of feathery flowering grasses with a peacock's feather or two among them to set them off, and the china bowls full of dead rose leaves dried with bay salt. All has long since vanished and become a memory, faded but still fragrant to myself. Nay, but her kitchen, and the glimpses into a cavernous cellar beyond it, wherefrom came gleams from the pale surfaces of milk cans or it may be of the arms and face of a milkmaid skimming the cream, or again her storeroom, where among other treasures she kept the famous lip-salve, which was one of her especial glories, and of which she would present a shape yearly to those whom she delighted to honour. She wrote out the recipe for this, and gave it to my mother a year or two before she died, but we could never make it as she did. When we were children she used sometimes to send her respects to my mother, and ask leave for us to come and take tea with her. Right well she used to ply us. As for her temper, we never met such a delightful old lady in our lives. Whatever Mr. Pontifex may have had to put up with, we had no cause for complaint, and then Mr. Pontifex would play to us upon the organ, and we would stand round him open-mouthed and think him the most wonderfully clever man that was ever born, except, of course, our papa. 
Mrs. Pontifex had no sense of humour, at least I can call to mind no signs of this, but her husband had plenty of fun in him, though few would have guessed it from his appearance. I remember my father once sent me down to his workshop to get some glue, and I happened to come when old Pontifex was in the act of scolding his boy. He had got the lad, a pudding-headed fellow, by the ear and was saying, "'What? Lost again? Smothered a wit?' I believe it was the boy who was himself supposed to be a wandering soul, and who was thus addressed as lost. "'Now look here, my lad,' he continued. "'Some boys are born stupid, and thou art one of them. Some achieve stupidity. That's thee again, Jim.' Thou wast both born stupid, and hath greatly increased thy birthright. And some—and here came a climax during which the boy's head and ear was swayed from side to side—have stupidity thrust upon them, which, if it please the Lord, shall not be thy case, my lad, for I will thrust stupidity from thee, though I have to box thine ears in doing so but I did not see that the old man really did box Jim's ears, or do more than pretend to frighten him, for the two understood one another perfectly well. Another time I remember hearing him call the village rat-catcher by saying, "'Come hither, thou three days and three nights, thou!' alluding, as I had afterwards learned, to the rat-catcher's periods of intoxication. But I will tell no more of such trifles." My father's face would always brighten when old Pontifex's name was mentioned. "'I tell you, Edward,' he would say to me, "'old Pontifex was not only an able man, but he was one of the very ablest men that I ever knew.' This was more than I as a young man was prepared to stand. "'My dear father,' I answered, "'what did he do? He could draw a little.' But could he, to save his life, have got a picture into the Royal Academy exhibition? He built two organs, and could play the minuet and Samson on one, and the march and Scipio on the other. He was a good carpenter, and a bit of a wag. He was a good old fellow enough, but why make him out so much abler than he was? "'My boy,' returned my father, "'you must not judge by the work, but by the work in connection with the surroundings.' Could Giotto or Filippo Lippi, think you, have got a picture into the exhibition? Would a single one of those frescoes we went to see when we were in Padua have the remotest chance of being hung, if it were sent in for exhibition now? Why, the Academy people would be so outraged that they would not even write to poor Giotto to tell him to come and take his fresco away. Phew! He continued, waxing warm. If old Pontifex had had Cromwell's chances, he would have done all that Cromwell did, and have done it better. If he had had Giotto's chances, he would have done all that Giotto did, and done it no worse. As it was, he was a village carpenter, and I will undertake to say he never scamped a job in the whole course of his life. But, I said, we cannot judge people with so many ifs. If old Pontifex had lived in Giotto's time, he might have been another Giotto. But he did not live in Giotto's time. "'I tell you, Edward,' said my father with some severity, "'we must judge men not so much by what they do, as by what they make us feel that they have it in them to do. If a man has done enough, either in painting, music, or the affairs of life, 
to make me feel that I might trust him in an emergency, he has done enough. It is not by what a man has actually put upon his canvas, nor yet by the axe which he has set down, so to speak, upon the canvas of his life that I will judge him, but by what he makes me feel that he felt and aimed at. If he has made me feel that he felt those things to be lovable, which I hold lovable myself, I ask no more. His grammar may have been imperfect, but I still have understood him. He and I are in rapport, and I say again, Edward, that old Pontifex was not only an able man, but one of the very ablest men I ever knew. Against this there was no more to be said, and my sisters eyed me to silence. Somehow or other my sisters always did eye me to silence when I differed from my father. Talk of his successful son, snorted my father, whom I fairly roused. He is not fit to black his father's boots. He has his thousands of pounds a year, while his father had perhaps three thousand shillings a year toward the end of his life. He is a successful man, but his father, hobbling about Palaham Street in his grey-worsted stockings, broad-brimmed hat and brown sallow-tailed coat, was worth a hundred of George Pontifex's, for all his carriages and horses and the airs he gives himself. But yet, he added, George Pontifex is no fool either. And this brings us to the second generation of the Pontifex family, with whom we need concern ourselves. CHAPTER Two. Old Mr. Pontifex had married in the year 1750, but for fifteen years his wife bore no children. At the end of that time, Mrs. Pontifex astonished the whole village by showing unmistakable signs of a disposition to present her husband with an heir or heiress. Hers had long ago been considered a hopeless case, and when on consulting the doctor concerning the meaning of certain symptoms, she was informed of their significance. She became very angry and abused the doctor roundly for talking nonsense. She refused to put so much as a piece of thread into a needle in anticipation of her confinement, and would have been absolutely unprepared if her neighbors had not been better judges of her condition than she was, and got things ready without telling her anything about it. Perhaps she feared Nemesis, though assuredly she knew not who or what Nemesis was. Perhaps she feared the doctor had made a mistake, and she should be laughed at. From whatever cause, however, her refusal to recognize the obvious arose. She certainly refused to recognize it, until one snowy night in January the doctor was sent for with all urgent speed across the rough country roads. When he arrived he found two patients, not one, in need of his assistance, for a boy had been born who was in due time christened George, in honor of his then reigning majesty. To the best of my belief, George Pontifex got the greater part of his nature from this obstinate old lady, his mother, a mother who, though she loved no one else in the world except her husband, and him only after a fashion, was most tenderly attached to the unexpected child of her old age. Nevertheless, she showed it little. The boy grew up into a sturdy, bright-eyed little fellow with plenty of intelligence, and perhaps a trifle too great readiness at book-learning. Being kindly treated at home, he was as fond of his father and mother as it was in his nature to be of any one. But he was fond of no one else. 
he had a good healthy sense of meum, and as little of tum as he could help, brought up much in the open air in one of the best situated and healthiest villages in England. His little limbs had fair play, and in those days children's brains were not overtasked as they are now. Perhaps it was for this very reason that the boy showed an avidity to learn. At seven or eight years old he could read, write, and some better than any other boy of his age in the village. My father was not yet rector of Palaham, and did not remember George Pontifex's childhood, but I have heard neighbors tell him that the boy was looked upon as unusually quick and forward. His father and mother were naturally proud of their offspring, and his mother was determined that he should one day become one of the kings and counsellors of the earth. It is one thing, however, to resolve that one's son shall win some of life's larger prizes, and another to square matters with fortune in this respect. George Pontifex might have been brought up as a carpenter, and succeeded in no other way than as succeeding his father as one of the minor magnates of Palaham, and yet have been a more truly successful man than he actually was. For I take it that there is not much more solid success in this world than what fell to the lot of old Mr. and Mrs. Pontifex. It happened, however, that about the year 1780, when George was a boy of fifteen, a sister of Mr. Pontifex's, who had married a Mr. Fairley, came to pay a few days' visit at Palaham. Mr. Fairley was a publisher, chiefly of religious works, and had an establishment in Paternoster Row. He had risen in life, and his wife had risen with him. No very close relations had been maintained between the sisters for some years, and I forget exactly how it came about that Mr. and Mrs. Fairley were guests in the quiet but exceedingly comfortable house of their sister and brother-in-law. But for some reason or other the visit was paid, and little George soon succeeded in making his way into his uncle and aunt's good graces. A quick, intelligent boy with a good address, a sound constitution, and coming of respectable parents, had a potential value which a practiced businessman who has need of many subordinates, is little likely to overlook. Before his visit was over, Mr. Fairley proposed to the lad's father and mother that he should put him into his own business, at the same time promising that if the boy did well, he should not want someone to bring him forward. Mrs. Pontifex had her son's interests too much at heart to refuse such an offer, so the matter was soon arranged and about a fortnight after the Fairleys had left, George was sent up by coach to London, where he was met by his uncle and aunt, with whom it was arranged that he should live. This was George's great start in life. He now wore more fashionable clothes than he had yet been accustomed to, and any little rusticity of gait or pronunciation which he had brought from Palaham was so quickly and completely lost that it was ere long impossible to detect that he had not been born and bred among people of what is commonly called education. The boy paid great attention to his work, and more than justified the favorable opinion which Mr. Fairley had formed concerning him. Sometimes Mr. Fairley would send him down to Palaham for a few days' holiday, and ere long his parents perceived that he had acquired an air and manner of talking different from any that he had taken with him from Palaham. They were proud of him, and soon fell into their proper places, 
resigning all appearance of a parental control, for which indeed there was no kind of necessity. In return, George was always kindly to them, and to the end of his life retained a more affectionate feeling towards his father and mother than I imagine him ever to have felt again for man, woman, or child. George's visits to Palaham were never long, for the distance from London was under fifty miles, and there was a direct coach, so that the journey was easy. There was not time, therefore, for the novelty to wear off, either on the part of the young man, or of his parents. George liked the fresh country air and green fields, after the darkness to which he had been so long accustomed in Paternoster Row, which then, as now, was a narrow, gloomy lane, rather than a street independently of the pleasure of seeing the familiar faces of the farmers and villagers. He liked also being seen and being congratulated on growing up such a fine-looking and fortunate young fellow, for he was not the youth to hide his light under a bushel. His uncle had had taught him Latin and Greek of an evening. He had taken kindly to these languages and had rapidly and easily mastered what many boys take years in acquiring. I suppose his knowledge gave him a self-confidence which made itself felt whether he intended it or not. At any rate, he soon began to pose as a judge of literature, and from this to being a judge of art, architecture, music, and everything else. The path was easy. Like his father, he knew the value of money, but he was at once more ostentatious and less liberal than his father. While yet a boy, he was a thorough little man of the world and did well rather upon principles which he had tested by personal experiment, and recognized as principles, than from those profounder convictions which in his father were so instinctive that he could give no account concerning them. His father, as I have said, wondered at him and let him alone. His son had fairly distanced him, and in an inarticulate way the father knew it perfectly well. After a few years he took to wearing his best clothes whenever his son came to stay with him, nor would he discard them for his ordinary ones till the young man had returned to London. I believe old Mr. Pontifex, along with his pride and affection, felt also a certain fear of his son, as though of something which he could not thoroughly understand, and whose ways, notwithstanding outward agreement, were nevertheless not as his ways. Mrs. Pontifex felt nothing of this. To her, George was pure and absolute perfection. And she saw, or thought she saw, with pleasure that he resembled her and her family in feature as well as in disposition, rather than her husband and his. When George was about twenty-five years old, his uncle took him into partnership on very liberal terms. He had little cause to regret this step. The young man infused fresh vigor into a concern that was already vigorous, and by the time he was thirty found himself in the receipt of not less than fifteen hundred pounds a year as his share of the profits. Two years later he married a lady about seven years younger than himself, who brought him a handsome dowry. She died in 1805 when her youngest child, Alethea, was born, and her husband did not marry again. End of chapter 2 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman